Welcome back to License to Spiel. I'm Thad Heat. I'm Carl Wonders. And we've jumped ahead in time a bit to the 24th century to talk about the Deep Space Nine episode, Our Man Bashir. I think our uh, fandoms have converged at, at last here, for real, this time. <laughs> I don't know, can I come up with some way to reference Star Trek in this episode? I don't know, it's going to be hard. We're going to have to twist this a little bit, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is, uh, you know, this is, a, again, as Thad mentioned, the Deep Space Nine episode. This is from season four. It's episode 10. So the teleplay for this episode is written by Ronald D. Moore, who is uh, well known for writing uh, various episodes of Deep Space Nine. He then went on to be the showrunner for Battlestar Galactica and other such shows. Um, I think this is a great example of... He also wrote for TNG before DS9, didn't he? He did. I love his, I actually like his origin story where he, you know, got a tour of the set because his girlfriend worked for Paramount and he handed a script to some dude and they passed it on and he ended up getting hired as a writer for it, uh, writing the, the bonding. I was back during the open submission policy. At least people still did that. There's legal yeah. reasons why you can't There's do that. There's all anymore, sorts of liabilities um, with that though. Yeah. So yeah, clearly this is the... Star Trek homage to James Bond, which is why we're doing this episode <laughs> specifically. Uh, you know, right off the bat, you get this great, like, I got to give props to Jay Chataway, who wrote the music for this episode. Yes. Just, he he's really channeling that James Bond, John Barry feel to the music. throws in a bit of sleazy saxophone at times though which isn't quite right but i'll go with it it works it's, it works it works for me yeah yeah and then they reuse some of this music for uh bada bing bada bang then yes they did yeah we see the original falcon here going through a window to kick off the episode mm-hmm. um which is great a lot of kick for a 45 dom look oh yeah <laughs> great line they I, I bet he had a lot of fun writing these james bond parody pun lines like mm-hmm. and, I, and i love like you know he hits the guy in the head with the cork from the champagne bottle because he sees his reflection in the champagne champagne bottle which maybe is more where that memory alpha thing comes from uh that you mentioned where oh, they give that this weird be. tenuous yeah. tie to that to the scene Still, in goldfinger no. when he like yeah, no but i think seeing the reflection in the champagne bottle compared to the the woman's eye in Goldfinger is a little bit better. You yes, think, you can actually see yeah. reflections in the champagne bottles. You can. That works better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you um, w- usually wouldn't because there would be condensation, but you can. Yeah. Yeah. I like how Garrick just shows up here, uh, already dressed golf. in a tuxedo. Little, he, <laughs> yes. So he broke into the hollow suite with a tuxedo on. He's doing his golf clap thing, which is great. Um, 
So Bashirier mentions that it's illegal to break into somebody's holosuite, but people Which do this it should all be. the time. It absolutely it should, should, oh, should be. Oh, absolutely it should be. <laughs> but this never stopped anybody before. No. Or like, after. Imagine, because we yeah, see imagine, them do it on lower decks as well. Yes. I mean, imagine... We see them do it on Voyager. With... I mean... Yep. Yeah. Uh, they did it, like, every week on TNG, basically. I mean, Barkley would still be in the holodeck. <laughs> well, no, they could probably get him out. Mm. <laughs> but they, they, they'd, like, beam him out and terminate the program without seeing what it was or something. Right. Yeah. No, there's a whole bunch of... Yeah. Uh, th- this episode is, th- is one that actually does that correctly. Because, yes, it absolutely should be illegal to walk in on someone's holodeck program. Yeah. Because... Oh man, that you could be you could come walk into all sorts of private things. You you could. Now, I am a 100% fan of the Bashir Garrick ship thing. So I love the line about how, you know, Garrick is part of his fantasy because I think he absolutely belongs in Bashir's <laughs> fantasies, frankly. I mean, anyone who doesn't think <laughs> that Andrew Robinson was deliberately playing the role that way for the entire show is blind. Oh, he's admitted it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said that. But, I mean, that first meeting between yeah. Bashir and Garrick is... Yeah, that's the so line much... right in the DS9 documentary. He's like, the first thing he yeah. wanted to do was have sex with him. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I would definitely believe that Garrick would be in Bashir's fantasies. Yep. And then, of course, you know, he's interrupting this thing and the the woman that Bashir was about to make Bula loop with I guess uh, she walks out on him and you have the great line where he don't worry doctor I can be very discreet you'll barely know I'm here good uh, but if I may make one observation Garrick I only want to point out that your lovely companion is leaving odd she seemed so interested in your advances just a moment ago I wonder what scared her away. Oh, no. I do apologize. You must be incensed. In fact, if I were in your shoes, I'd grab a bottle of champagne and shoot me. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just love. Yeah. I love Garrick's entire... His role in this entire episode is basically to poke holes in Mm -hmm. the balloon that is James Bond. And it works so because well. Because it works so well because, of course, he is a spy. And mm-hmm. he knows what it's like to be a spy. And he's essentially calling BS on everything, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I joined the wrong intelligence service. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's where we meet the personal valet, Mona Loves It. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is, is, I guess, the TV step down from so, a lot of vagina from... Austin Powers, right. maybe. Yeah, but... <laughs> and I really can't understand why. Like MGM wrote Paramount a really nasty letter after this episode yep. aired because they were claiming they were infringing copyright. Like, if yeah. that had ever gone to court, it would not have held up. Oh no, 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 no! Because this is clearly a parody. <laughs> yeah, and there have been so many parodies before this. Oh yeah. And, you know, in the 80s, you had Remington Steel, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a Bond parody. I mean, it has Pierce Brosnan in it, so that helps a little bit. But 
people have been making fun of James Bond ever since James Bond was a thing. So yeah, I mean, well, yeah. heck, when did the first? When did the uh, Casino Royale come out? The the parody, the one we yeah unfortunately watched a couple weeks ago. Uh, that was nineteen sixty seven. Right, exactly. <laughs> so but, I mean, I I mean, Fleischer had the rights to the novel, and he turned it into that abysmal thing that he did. Right, but it was also guess, clearly but, a parody of Bond. Sure. But I guess there, what there's, I guess what MGM was rather ludicrously saying was that, you know, at least he had the rights to a novel. Yeah, but they're not. They never used any specific no. things from Bond. No, I mean it's, I mean TNG ran into this too when they did the well, they Sherlock Holmes literally stuff, were and they literally it. used Sherlock Holmes and they used the names and all that stuff. And I guess they had their, you know, they were more rightfully challenged by Conan Doyle people, but. Right. Yeah, there, there's, I mean, there's that one was, single... was legitimate. They were actually using Conan Doyle's IP. And they came right. to an agreement, and that's why we did get another episode with Moriarty get... later. Oh, Ship in a Bottle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, here there's there's not a single mention of James Bond directly in this episode. No. So, yeah. That said, they did release it ten days after GoldenEye hit theaters, so they knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fun fact, like, when I, I saw this episode when it aired as a kid, and uh-huh. I was not familiar with James Bond, so, like, I probably, I, I guarantee, I remember, I just think we remember watching this episode and really enjoying it, but I, almost certain, I had no idea that it was a reference to Bond. Oh, okay. It was just a fun holodeck Yeah, adventure, like, I when guess. I was yeah. nine years old, I had never seen a Bond film. Right. So, okay. yeah, like, I probably had no idea. I do, I, I have very vivid memories of sitting on the floor in the living room watching this episode, though. hmm Like, weirdly, I don't remember the first time I saw this episode. I have, I remember watching a lot of early run Voyager mm-hmm. uh, when I was in, I guess, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. I remember watching Emissary, and I remember watching a few episodes of the first season. I remember watching the Circle Trilogy, which is... The, what starts the second season of Deep Space Nine uh-huh. and thinking, oh, this is really good. This is way better than what they'd been doing previously. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember a lot of the first time I saw DS9. So, I mean, I'm sure I saw this when it ran and I'm sure I got all the references because, you know, unfortunately I'm older than you are. <laughs> so I've seen Bond. What's so unfortunate but, about that? Well, you'll get there. Um, yeah, but you'll be even older. <laughs> that's that's very true. That's how time works, sadly. Uh, <laughs> but no, I don't, I don't remember when I saw this episode the first time. Like I didn't realize that this came out, uh, you know, relative to when Goldeneye came out. I remember going to see Goldeneye in the theater, mm-hmm. and you know, that was that was one of the first times I think I went to a movie without my parents. Weirdly enough. Um, I remember well, the first my, movie. I my sister and I went and saw that. Oh yeah, yeah. It was Star Trek: First Contact, which was nice. A year yeah. after this, because mm-hmm. my no, my, I, I, I my, did as well. My uh, older sister turned. Uh, I, I had I had to wait a few weeks after it came out because I was under thirteen, and my older sister turned eighteen uh, in December that year. So she took me to see uh. it as a Christmas present. Oh wow! Yeah, that was around Christmas time, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. it was, yeah, it wasn't until the Kelvin movies that they started releasing in the summer. 
Yeah, I remember going to see that with my friend from high school, actually. And I, the, the biggest thing I remember about that, weirdly, like the first run thing was, uh, I think, right before First Contact was when they did uh, Future's End on Voyager. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember when the Borg Queen says, watch your Future's End, I'm like, I just saw that episode. <laughs> <laughs> I also remember so, watching Future's End when it first aired. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's like the last episode of Voyager I remember watching in first run. Oh, I watched much more of Voyager in first run. Well, I went off to college and didn't have cable. Sure. So. Yeah. Technically, but UPN's not... not cable. Fair. I, I, my, we never had cable at my house growing up. My parents got cable after I moved out. Uh, okay. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. So, but <laughs> you know, whatever. UPN was one of the channels we got. We had we had an antenna on the roof of the house, so we got all the mm-hmm. regular broadcast channels. Okay. Including UPN yeah, and, and, and Fox, which was the local Fox affiliate, was where DS9 was on. Okay, because we were on DS9 and TNG were on the local CBS affiliate. I think up yeah, out of Erie. TNG would have been on the local Fox. Yeah. I don't think I saw any TNG first run. Okay. I started watching syndicate. I mean, all TNG was syndicated, but I mean, right. like, you know, <laughs> afterwards, I. I like traditionally syndicated C- TNG, I think during TNG's seventh season, but I don't think I saw any of those seventh season episodes first run. Okay, because no, I I remember sitting down and watching Encounter at Farpoint when it debuted. I was uh, one year old when Encounter at Farpoint debuted. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, I was well, I was like eight, I guess. Actually, what, and I when remem- did Encounter at Farpoint come out? I know it was 87, 80, but... I, do it was 87, yeah. I, I mean, I'm at the month. Well, my, my birthday's in January, so if it's in 87... Oh, it was September, it was yeah, so I was one year old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, no, I remember, like, seeing a cast photo and being confused because I thought Data should have been the captain because he was wearing a gold uniform because ah. I didn't realize they were switching the colors on sure. us at that point. Nowadays, the gold uniform kind of seems weird to me, but unless it's... See, TOS. I started watching TNG and TOS syndicated it at, like at the same time. So like it's it that was never like the it was just like oh TOS is gold, TNG is is red. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh the first episode of DS9 I watched, I'm not positive, but it was I it, it would have been season 2. Um mm-hmm. and I think I remember looking it up once. It's it's a Ferengi episode cuz uh I, I vividly remember the Nagus Scepter. Okay. <laughs> um, and But the first one that I remember, like, for sure watching, it was the TNG Season 3 premiere, The Search, which also has the Nagus Scepter in it, actually. Yep. That's the very end of the, episode, of the season. Well, no, that's, the, that's beginning the beginning of Season, of season three. 3. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They started with the two-parter. I, re- I, I vividly remember watching, I and I watched quite a bit of Season 3. I remember loving the adversary the end of season three yep and then of course season four started and it just blew me away and i was like ds at that point ds9 was was in my opinion the best television show ever made and i haven't changed that opinion i was gonna say it still is but <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably rules of acquisition i'm guessing was your probably yeah yeah like I don't remember it enough. Like that's the one that would make sense based on the airing and all, but I like don't remember enough of it to be sh- to you know tell yeah. you for sure. Or, or was the Nagus in profit and loss? No, the Nagus wasn't in profit and loss. 
no, I'm looking at all the episodes now. It it probably was. Yeah. Uh, Rules of Acquisition. Yeah. That would make sense. Yep. Was that the first? That wasn't the first. Did the Nagus appear in season one? Yeah, there's the Nagus. Right. I think. Duh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about spot on casting, though. Yes. Like getting Wallace Shawn to be the Grand Nagus. I remember uh, that. I remember hearing somewhere that they could only get him once or twice a season just because of how much he hated the makeup. I I believe it. I also did not, until many years later, realize that it was the same guy as uh, Vizini from... Oh, really? <laughs> Princess Bride. I mean, he sounds just like him. He does. <laughs> but, you know, he's wearing a lot of makeup. <laughs> Inconceivable, Quark! <laughs> <laughs> that will be my only Grand Nagus impression on this, co- on this podcast. Uh, who... Coincidentally, <laughs> sadly, he is not in this episode. Uh, Man, that would have been amazing. It would have been like have him replace Doctor Noah is played by the Grand Nagus. Or, or yeah, or Duchamp. <laughs> Duchamp is great. Oh man. <laughs> Because, no, Dr. Noah has to be played by Avery Brooks, because Avery Brooks has to be, do his ridiculous overacting. And oh, I love it. <laughs> he does a master class in how to choose scenery in this oh, episode. It's so oh, so good. Like, well, Avery Brooks is always, like... <laughs> like, Avery Brooks is always on the brink of that to begin with, and yeah. just the fact that he just lets it loose, it's like, oh my god, it's so good. Well, everything he does is meant for, like, theater in the round, and then he's in a close-up on television. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I I dare I say it's like Shatner, but, like, good. Because Shatner is also a classically theater-trained actor. He is. um, I don't know if I want to credit or blame the difference in era, (laughs) but... My my f- my favorite Shatner overacting is in uh, Whom Gods Destroy when he's Garth and he's like annoyed that he can't get beamed up and he does that like tantrum thing where he yes. like, pounds the computer and he thr- throttles the guy and he's like on his knees throwing a temper tantrum. It's great. Ah, is that the I'm Captain Kirk acting. scene? Or is that? Oh no, that's that's no, that that's enemy um, Oh no, that was talking about yeah. a traitor when he's I'm Captain Kirk, isn't it? No, that's no, it's it's enemy or um. It's uh, the enemy within. Man, there's so many just... episodes where Kirk isn't Kirk. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's also um, that other one. <laughs> That's descriptive. Well, there's Tomorrow's Yesterday. When That's he's the one I was not, thinking of, not, yeah. When he's Sargon, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, there's so many episodes where Kirk isn't Kirk. I never thought about that before. Yeah. Well, technically, in Enemy Within, he is still Kirk. He's just—he's Kirk, and he's evil Kirk. He's but... just yes, but the evil is required to be his right. That's a weird story I if you think about Captain it. Captain Kirk. Yeah, and you get the space dog. Mm-hmm. Back when wrapping a scarf around a dog qualified as an alien. <laughs> so bad. All right, so this episode. Yeah, this episode. <laughs> We we finally get the uh, the reason this episode exists, I guess, with mm-hmm. this Cisco and Kira and Dax and O'Brien are all coming back from Owen oh, Worf. Yeah, 
uh, are coming back from some conference because they were always coming coming or going to a conference. There were always so many conferences. There are so many conferences in Star Trek. DS9 and TNG, they were always going to conferences. And there's always something bad happens when you're coming home from a conference, too. Well, so recently I loved this interaction where somebody was talking about how in one of the episodes of TNG... Picard was like, conference? Ah, screw the conference. We're going to go do this other thing instead. And it set off this whole thing. Uh, I used to work for a nonprofit that put on conferences and Mm -hmm. talking about what a dick move that would be to have one of your VIPs say, I'm not coming to your conference anymore. Uh, (laughs) And he was doing that all the time. Yes. But here they're coming back from a conference and they're tired because... You're always tired from a conference. Anyone who's gone to STLV knows how tiring it can be. A little bit. And for some reason, the runabout, or yeah, they, the runabout they're in blows up because the warp core thing, the, they can't jettison the warp core as because usual. Because you can never eject a warp core in Star Trek. Correct. It works as well as the holodeck safety systems. It does, which we'll find out later. Or cortical stimulators. Mm. Hey, they at least make the body bounce. <laughs> That's true. They do bounce around a little bit, yeah. So they're trying to beam them off the runabout, and the runabout explodes, and they're trapped in the pattern buffer, because they weren't able to rematerialize for plot reasons. Yeah, so, I mean, that makes sense. It overloaded because of the explosion actually doesn't make that much sense, because how many episodes of TNG did they have someone beam over during an explosion and they were fine? Yep. But maybe the Cardassian transporter doesn't work as well, or whatever. But maybe they can't keep them in the pattern buffer until they fix the transporter. They have to store them somewhere else. And I'm and all I'm I'm sitting here thinking, remember that time Scotty saved himself in a pattern buffer for a hundred years? Yep. <laughs> you would think he wrote at least a paper on that to explain how he did it. Yeah, you'd think so. <laughs> and we're not talking about a hundred years. We're talking about like maybe a couple of days until they can figure out what to do. Like, yeah. Uh, probably not even that. Just a few hours. Yeah. It'd be even less time if O'Brien wasn't one of the people in the transporter. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Because <laughs> we're down to Rom and Eddington at this point. Yeah, so that's the other thing. There's <laughs> Surely there's like an actual engineering staff. <laughs> well, no, because they keep ending up being betrayers of the Federation. Like, what's her face? <laughs> the... <laughs> Wasn't that only one? That of assistant them? that O'Brien had. Wasn't that just the one? Did that happen more than once? No, maybe it was just once. Uh, I don't Wait, even remember her name. What about is well, Muniz isn't dead yet? What about him? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But anyway, we, we're down to Rom, who isn't part of the engineering staff yet. Not yet, no. Well, I, I guess it's because Rom is the only one that knows how the holosuites work because he has to keep it running with a spatula and a colander. Well, yeah, and I, I do like. We're jumping ahead, but I like the line when they said, oh, we should, you know, send everyone over to the Defiant and we can use the transporter over there. And he's like, well, you know, my system doesn't interface with Starfleet, which is nice because they're finally, you know, they're actually acknowledging that this is mm-hmm. a Cardassian station. So you know, I have a it's, problem it's, with it's this. It's like they don't have a dongle or something. They're talking about, so R- Rom says that he has to repair things with spatulas and other things like that because mm-hmm. Quark won't pay to do things. I believe, yeah, Quark doesn't want to pay for things. Yeah. Sure. But Quark says, I'm barely breaking even on these hollow suites as it is. Like, how? <laughs> They're the only hollow suites on the station. 
you're a Ferengi. How are you yep. not charging way more than it costs to run these things? Yeah, that's a good question. What are they going to do? Not go to the Hollow Suite? Clearly not. This is we're... Star Trek. That's not going to happen. No. Interesting. This is the only holodeck malfunction episode in DS9. Really? Yep. Huh. They. Uh, yeah, you know, I. Yeah. They had wanted to steer clear of it because TNG went back to that well so many times. Which right. apparently wasn't a problem on Voyager. Well, um, I guess. Bada bing, bada bang doesn't count because that was meant to happen. Yeah, the the holodeck program worked as planned, and the yeah. the it never trapped the characters anywhere or anything like the the actual True. people anywhere. It just changed the program. Okay, but uh, yeah, I I find that I find that amusing that they were deliberately steering clear of it, and because apparently the writers room on Voyager had no such compunction. No, because there were quite a few holodeck malfunction episodes on Voyager. Oh yeah, but I mean. Here we find the f the first inkling of a problem when we find that Kira has now taken the place of um, this Russian agent, Colonel Anastasia. Who is this Major Nerys Kira? Yeah. Who is Dax? Who is Dax? <laughs> <laughs> so this time, I've seen this episode a few times, and... I spent the whole time just watching Garrick with his open mouth reaction to everything that's going on in the scene. <laughs> so here's here's where we realize, like, oh, I guess this is where our crew went uh, to to save them because they couldn't stay in the the pattern buffer. Mm -hmm. They they ended up actually erasing all of the computer program apparently and to store storing... their. Okay, yeah. so here's another. Yeah, thing. <laughs> a couple things actually. Okay. Um, one, we know, and Star Trek has well established at this point, that actual, actually, thinking neurological patterns can be stored in holograms, because sentient holograms already exist in the Star Trek universe at this point. Mm-hmm. So, it's weird to think that. It's weird to say that, no, they can't. In fact, we've even seen... Uh, I mean, we didn't see it, the, obviously on DS9, they wouldn't have known about it, but there was a Voyager episode in Season 2 where they transferred someone's mind into a hologram. Yes, they did. <sighs> yep. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, if it's filling every available piece of memory on the station, how is the station functioning at all? Right. Uh, how are they able to use the communication system to talk to each other? How do the lights work? How are they not dead from the reactor overloading? I mean, right. there's a lot of... How do they have air? Right. Well, the air would yeah. last for hours, even if... It would, la it would, but they're not worried about it. Right. Like, and I realize, like, things are a little dark for them in ops, but it's not like everything went out. The panels, are consoles are still lit. Things are still happening. Well, that's another Star Trek trope. At least the consoles aren't flickering. That's true, and they're not sparking, and there aren't rocks falling from the ceiling. Yeah. The console's flickering has always bothered me. <laughs> I know. This should, this should be an on or off thing. It shouldn't right. be a... Yeah. Like, when the I console mean, it, is flickering, it, if you're fast enough, can you still use it? It it reminds me of... Again, I'm going to date myself. Our first computer at home was a Commodore 64, and it had a external floppy drive that had a red light that would come on when it was reading the disc and if there was an error of some sort it would just blink on and off mm -hmm. and that's what it, that's what those consoles always reminded me of like oh 
there's a disk read error, so it's going to stop. That light would come uh, on when it read read the disk incredibly slowly because they designed it poorly. Correct. <laughs> I've never had a Commodore, but I know that. Th- those things also took like three minutes to load a single program, so right. yeah, it was slow. Yeah, no, there was a it was a design flaw in the Commodore disk drive. It, it does, read it read the me. disk more slowly than it actually needed to. <laughs> Good. Well, that makes sense because I spent many minutes of my childhood waiting for some waiting for Donkey Kong to load. I want to uh, say it had something to do with the fact that the computer read from both uh, floppy drives and cassettes and, like, expected a certain speed of things, but I, I well, could the, be wrong on that. Well, the cassette was so much slower. Oh, God. <laughs> Awful. So we get... Yeah, sorry. Uh, my back this, had back a hard to drive. this episode. Uh, <laughs> we find out that there's a earthquakes that are happening across the world, and there's a scientist again by bond standards the name of professor honeybear <laughs> and bond has been assigned or not bond uh bashir has been assigned <laughs> to uh um to find the source of the earthquakes to which Garrick yep. says a rather vague assignment yes i love that <laughs> uh this is when mona loves it shows up with a knife in her back unfortunately and we find out that dun 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 the Falcon has been replaced by Miles O'Brien. Yeah, I know. The O'Brien as Falcon is great. Yep. Uh, and I like how Bashir has to come up with excuses for not killing him. Yes, because if they kill him, then his pattern is erased from the computer, and O'Brien is dead. Yeah, and we get a nice conversation between Bashir and Garrick, where Garrick's just like, well, you might just have to kill these people. Yeah. Yet, what are you doing? We can't kill him. Julian, what are you saying? He's been trying to kill you for nine years. I wouldn't dismiss her idea so quickly, Doctor. But that's Miles. No, as you pointed out, he's Falcon, a hired assassin who's going to do everything he can to kill you. And without the Hollow Suite safeties in place, he may just do that. Well, what do you want me to do? Kill him? I want you to stop treating this like a game where everything's going to turn out all right in the end. Real spies have to make hard choices. You want to save Dax? Fine. But you may not have the luxury of saving everyone. Who is that? Eventually, you may have to let someone die. I'll deal with that situation if and when it happens. In the meantime, we have to find Dax. Who is Dax? Anna, I promise I'll explain everything later. That comes back a little bit later. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is the scene where Garrick is now bleeding, so we find out that the once again the holodeck safeties are. There not are no holodeck safeties. It's a. It's a it's, myth. It's a, yeah, because they never work, so no. there aren't any. Yeah, The only time they're ever mentioned is when they're not working or they're being turned off. When they're being turned off, the computer is just like, yeah, sure, they're off now. There aren't actually holographic safeties. It's just to make people feel more comfortable in the holodeck. Yeah, no, I, I buy that. Meanwhile, back on the station, we're looking into the On the other hand, program. why is the holodeck even capable of killing people? It, yeah... <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, you think a bullet could, you know, just dematerialize before it hits you. Yeah. Like, a bullet made of light should not be made in such a way that it could kill you. Like, True. There's no reason... Like, I understand certain objects need to have force fields so they can pick them up. But why would you program bullets that way? Why wouldn't you just program the bullet to just be light? Because you shouldn't be shooting actual people with the bullets anyway 
True. It's very Westworld, the yes. movie, actually. I was just thinking, it's like yeah. Westworld. Yeah. Which, have you seen the film? I have seen the film. Okay, because they have the guns that, in theory, won't shoot actual guests at the, mm-hmm. at the resort because of the heat signature of them. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it should be something like that. But, I mean... But I don't. Then I don't know how things like Worf's so-called calisthenics program works, where he gets the crap beaten out of him by monsters. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I personally don't think the film Westworld is all that good. Okay, I think it. Like I don't know. Maybe it's because I watched it after I had seen the TV show. Well, that doesn't help. Or after you've seen Jurassic Park. I yes, obviously. Yes, I had obviously seen it after I had seen yeah. Jurassic Park, so that might be part of it. Yes, I think Crichton told that story better when he when he redid it as Jurassic Park. Yeah, no, definitely. But I imagine for somebody in the seventies, that was I, I still enjoy it. But it also has it has that problem that movies had until the early nineties, where they just assume blood is like this orange red. Oh yeah, it's like. Did you never bleed? Like, why was like, that a thing? Like, even really good movies from that era, like, the the one that always bugs me is The French Connection, mm-hmm. where it's Haven't a really... It, of course. Oh, of course not. But it's a, it's a really good, gritty cop movie from the 70s, early 70s. But then whenever they shoot somebody, it's like they threw Campbell's tomato soup at them. Yeah. And it's really... Anyway, yeah. Well, that's just how fake blood looked until the 90s. It's, yeah, and I don't fully understand why. Like, they had to know what blood looks like. Yeah. I, I It has to be some kind of sensor thing, you would think. Maybe. I mean, I guess Taxi Driver's fairly realistic in that regard, but... Also haven't seen Taxi Driver. <sighs> yeah, hey, I think I've stop. seen four of the movies that you've posted in your thread <laughs> of good movies. Okay. <laughs> the ones you liked. Well, no, actually, I liked all of them. Okay. <laughs> but I haven't seen most of them. Okay. I saw Hunt for Red October. Right. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so anyway, in this anyway, episode. In this show, uh, they find out they have to go to a casino in Paris to meet Dr. Noah. And instead they come face to face with Duchamp, who is Worf. Yeah, this is a very... This is a very Casino Royale-esque thing. Yes. Because he's like, oh, I'm not really, you know, I, I don't have an invitation to see Dr. Noah. And Duchamp says, oh, it's going to cost you five million francs to see him. And he's like, okay, I'll just win all of your money by playing Baccarat. Because as he says later, Baccarat and geology are my life. So, <laughs> which yeah. I his love two, that line. His two interests, yeah. His two interests, yeah. Because he's posing as a famous geologist, because there are famous geologists, apparently. Sure. I can't name any of them, but I'm sure there no. are. No. My first college roommate was a geologist. Uh, are, are they famous? I don't think... I don't think, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Eric, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> Let us know if you're famous. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so then we we cut back to the we cut back to the people on the station for a second, mm-hmm. and we find yep. out from Eddington that a Cardassian group of separatists, 
uh, calling themselves the True Way. Oh, you're, you're. I think it was Oda that said it. Yeah, that have have claimed responsibility for sabotaging the runabout. We do see the True Way again. Uh, they're responsible for an attempted assassination of Shakar. Um, but I have some headcanon here, which is absolutely not how it was originally intended, because the writers wouldn't have had this decided yet. But mm-hmm. my headcanon is that Eddington was actually behind this and is pinning it on the Cardassians to sow discord between the Cardassians and the Federation. And I like that, actually. Because for people who maybe listen to this and have never watched Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, first off, I'm really sorry for confusing the heck out of you this episode. <laughs> Secondly, you, you may want to turn off before I give you a big spoiler. And thirdly, Eddington turns out to be a traitor. Yep. But that won't be for another season, and the writers wouldn't hadn't hadn't decided that yet at this point. No, which is amazing. Yes, because when you go back and watch the episodes before they decided that Eddington was a traitor, there are some great little nuggets that are dropped accidentally mm-hmm. <laughs> that he's a traitor. Have you seen Ken Marshall in anything other than this and Krull? I was about, uh, no, because I was about to say Krull, and <laughs> then you said yeah, it. <laughs> Right, that's the only other thing that I know him from, which is why I'm like, has he been in anything else? <laughs> he looks very different in Krull. Well, it was like he's, 20 he, years earlier. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Actually, it probably wasn't quite that long. No, it was more like 10, I think. He had hair then. 1983, so yeah, it was 12 years earlier. Yeah. But yes, he had considerably more hair in Krull. Liam Neeson (laughs) is also in Krull. He is, yeah. That's an 80s movie I have seen. That's a weird movie. It is a weird movie. kind of want to watch Krull now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we can... How do how do we I don't find think a way we to get can, tw- crawl uh, on come show? find some way to compare that to Bond though? No. <laughs> the glaive is like a Walter PPK. There you go. <laughs> I haven't seen Crawl in years. <laughs> it probably doesn't hold up. It probably not. I love uh it you know, going back to the episode. <laughs> yes, they, please. He he wins they, you know Bashir <laughs> wins all of Duchamp's money. And he gets gassed because that's what happens in, in a Bond movie. Sure. They wake up in the chateau and Garrick looks around <laughs> and says, Another decorator's nightmare. This era had a distinct lack of taste. Yes. <laughs> Here's where we meet Dr. Hippocrates Noah. Yeah, he's wearing an, he's, he's wearing a, well, he's wearing a Dr. Noah outfit. He's, yeah, he's wearing a standard issue Bond villain outfit. Fun fact, they origin- they forgot the snow originally for the background and had to, like, redo oh, really? the background for this scene. Could- because, like, wait, it's Mount Everest. There should be snow. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Uh, there were a lot of production on this episode. It took longer to produce this episode than any other single episode of Deep Space Nine. And mm. when you think about some of the crazy stuff that happens in other episodes of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Holy crap. Well, even things like in The Ascent where they're on location. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm just thinking, like, the giant space battles and, like, Sacrifice of Angels and Way sure. of the Warrior. Well, yeah, Way of the Warrior yeah. would have been two episodes, so that's a whole other thing. But right. production-wise, would have been two episodes. Yeah. But, yeah, like, the this episode took nine days to film. Uh-huh. Which is and, a long time for TV. Yeah. DS9 typically filmed in seven days. Yeah. Because they were cranking not, these out every week. I'm not sure why. 
actually. I mean, I haven't read the article, so I don't... I mean, yeah, the article says... doesn't really say why it took so long to film. Or Memory Alpha is, doesn't. I mean, this is all, like, set work. Yeah. I can certainly see so, how it, it costs a lot of money to do the sets. Yeah. I know uh, Vinrick Kolba said that the set was $25,000 more than budgeted because of overtime. Oh, to build it, or...? A $50,000 set cost $75,000 because there was $25,000 worth of overtime and weekend work. So, yeah, to build it. Yep. Okay. I mean, it's a great set. Yeah. It's it's fairly classically uh, villain lair-esque here. Mm-hmm. Man, you know, reading little snippets like that uh, on Memory Alpha is part of the reason why I really wish we had commentary tracks on the DVDs. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever watched Stargate SG-1. No, uh, for it's a it's a ten a ten season long show, and starting in season four, there's a commentary track for every single episode. Wow, yeah, which is really well. Cool. I like, I mean, I like in BSG where they were doing Ron Moore was basically getting scotch or whiskey and just hanging out and drinking and with his wife and talking about the episode. Yes, that's good. As too. a commentary, yeah, I want more of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, honestly, my favorite commentary track for anything ever is Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis for Star Trek Insurrection. I don't remember doing that. Yes, that's... <laughs> every like, Yeah, Marina is I, wasted, for one thing, when she's doing yes. this, when she's recording, which is cl- obvious. Yeah. And she also doesn't remember anything no, from the no. <laughs> And it's hilarious. And it's good, because... As much as I love Frakes, he's boring by himself. Because uh, he did a track, he did a commentary for, track for First Contact, and it's boring. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I like, I like the other commentary track for First Contact, but isn't that uh, Braga and Moore? Yep. Yeah, that one's good. I also really like the Akuda commentary track for Nemesis. Yes. So it should be said uh, they they did uh, they did on the DVD releases of all the movies the. Uh, Mike Akuda has a there's a text commentary from yes. Mike Akuda for on the production yes. of all the movies, but they didn't transfer that over to the Blu-rays, which I don't get because yeah. it's it's just there. Yeah, it's just it would have added a couple kilobytes to the file. I mean, yeah. yeah. Anyway. I think one of my favorite commentaries is at least as far as Star Trek goes is on Star Trek Five. They got Darren Doctorman, who was the guy who did a lot of the effects for the um, the director's cut of t- of the motion picture. You know, I don't think I realized there was another commentary other than Shatner. It's on the Blu-rays. Okay. I have and... not... I also have not listened to the Shatner commentary on 5. I have listened to the Nimoy and Shatner one for 4. That one's great. Yes. Uh, if Mostly because Shat, you can tell that Shatner has never watched this movie. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> No, no, the one, the one with Shatner and his daughter is pretty not. It's it's not good. I mean, um, I assumed as much. That's why I haven't. But like, it. but I think it's Darren Doctorman and the Okudas. Oh yeah, that and, that probably is good. And and so much of it is. I mean, Darren Doctorman, he's he's an effects guy primarily, mm-hmm. and it's him basically like, yeah, this effect is shit. This effect sucks. This this is terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, nice. It's hilarious. Yeah, uh, we can. Comp- you know, at least I have I have the episode playing, so I we completely miss the entire plot here, <laughs> the villain <laughs> the villain plot of this episode of we're going to fire lasers into the earth, lasers, uh, into the earth, and release a whole bunch of 
lava and it's going to shrink the earth and flood everything. So that in theory, the only landmass left could is going to be. I absolutely at... see this as a real Bond villain plot. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I have a, I have a real, I have a legitimate question here for this. No, so... it's not possible. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about the science. Well, not really, because um, when why should science matter in Bond? Hmm. Uh, you should, but well, you should ask your friend, the famous geologist, to be sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, would this work? Uh, no, it's. You know, he's he's done the standard, like, Hugo Drax thing of, I have the best minds, and we're going to repopulate the Earth, and blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, the spy who loved me in Moonraker, that's what they're really mm-hmm. doing here. The only Earth that's left is this little tiny island. Like, where are they going to live? <laughs> yeah. How are they going to have enough land to produce food? And Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> There's, yeah, it doesn't really work. No. I mean, at least in Moonraker, they were going to be up in space and, you know, nerve gas the entire planet and then go back later when everything everything else is dead. Or all the people are dead, I guess. But yeah, anyway, that's that was my biggest question about this. Was, okay, where where is this new race of humans going to live? Excellent question. Uh, we get the standard Bond trope that they are now... He and Bashir... He and Bashir. Bashir and, Gar- and Garrick are tied down to this laser... And, you know, he's going to set off the five-minute countdown that he can't stop, which is questionable. Uh, I also like that uh, Dr. Noah has a giant world map just so he can point out to Bond where all the lasers are. <laughs> yes. That is very that is very Bond. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I spent like 15 minutes complaining about Goldfinger's diorama. So, yeah, this is absolutely real Bond. At least the couches don't rotate to look yeah. at the map. <laughs> Like they do in Russian in the Russian headquarters. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All yeah. this. I mean, he shows up later, but this episode could have benefited from having Stephen Burkoff show up. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine Stephen Burkoff and Avery Brooks over, uh, chewing scenery? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is quite good in the episode he has in DS Nine. He is. Yeah, but he. I don't think he ever does anything with Avery Brooks. It's just with. Uh, Armin Shimmerman and yeah. company. Uh, <laughs> another great Garrick moment when Honey Bear comes in and he starts flirting with her and says, oh, can you take off your glasses as a my last request? And Garrick's like, is that your plan? <laughs> yeah, and that's like, oh, the, 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 the tired trope. Like, because I realize they're playing it for the, for the movie. Like, yeah. that's the way she's supposed to. But it's like, were we supposed to think she wasn't attractive before she took her glasses off? Right. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like, like many things with Bond, this has not aged that well, even mm-hmm. though they're making fun of it. Yeah. I mean, he ends up, you know, she kisses him and then comes back and gives him the key to unlock the handcuffs, and you get the great Garrick line of, Honey has given me all we need. Hmm. Kiss the girl, get the key. They never taught me that in the Obsidian Order. Indeed. Probably one of the best Garrick lines. Or it's up there, at least. Yeah, and now the laser is firing, and Garrick wants to cut their losses and leave rather than die. Yep. Bashir is not having it, and Garrick's about to call for the exit, and Bashir Mm -hmm. actually shoots him. He shoots him in the neck, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Which Mm. has the, the great scene with... No! 
This has gone far enough. It's time to cut our losses. Oh, we can't do that. Hero Dax might... Yes, they might be killed, and that is unfortunate. But there comes a time when the odds are against you, and the only reasonable course of action is to quit. Quit? Yes! Is that what they taught you at the Obsidian Order? To give up when things get tough? As a matter of fact, they did. That's why I've managed to stay alive while most of my colleagues are dead, because I know when to walk away, and that time is now. Now! And you'd know that, Doctor, if you were a real intelligence agent. Oh, so that's what this is all about. The fact that my fantasy happens to step on what you consider to be your private domain. Well, what's the matter, Garrick? Have I bruised your ego by play-acting at something you take so very seriously? That's something else you've yet to learn, Doctor. A real intelligence agent has no ego, no conscience, no remorse. Only a sense of professionalism. And mine is telling me that it's time to go. Computer! Don't! Or what? You'll kill me? If you call for the exit, you might kill Cisco and the others, and I am not prepared to risk that. I'm afraid I don't believe you'll pull that trigger. I wouldn't be so sure about that. It's time to face reality, Doctor. You're a man who dreams of being a hero because you know, deep down, that you're not. I'm no hero either. But I do know how to make a choice. And I'm choosing to save myself. Computer, show me the mechanism. Oh. Uh. You'll be fine. It's just a flesh wound. That was awfully close. What if you killed me? Makes you think I wasn't trying. Doctor, I do believe there's hope for you yet. Yes. <laughs> this is definitely one of the better Garrick episodes. I mean, they're all great. There are no bad Garrick episodes. There are no bad Garrick episodes, but this is one of the better ones. Yes. My... It's really sad to me that Garrick and uh, Sloane never faced off against each other. Oh, that would be interesting. That would have been... Yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah. But... In this in this scene, they break in and Garrick immediately disarms Falcon. Like immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, Falcon is like the generic Bond henchman guy who's useless. That's true, but he's like more useless than usual. Yeah. But then Noah gets the upper hand and he's talking. He's doing his standard monologuing. Yep, of course. And uh, Bashir uh, turns the tables by saying that. I agree with you. I think we should destroy the world. And we get the great... <laughs> Avery Brooks <Ha>! responds. <laughs> Where he just sort of jumps when he says it. Oh, so so good. good. Maybe I'm tired of being a hero. Maybe I've thought over what you've said and decided that you're absolutely right. About what? Everything. The decadence of the world, the need for order. The more I think about it, the more I realize... That your way may be the only way. <laughs> and it's just like the pause. Mm-hmm. Where there's I mean it's 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 one of the best gifts out there of of DS9, where it's just him standing there and then all of a sudden he's like, ha! Like <laughs> What I bothers me on that is when you search for it, invariably the first one you find is one where the ha in the caption doesn't match his mouth. Yeah. 
like you had one job. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Here he is, you know, stalling for time, and he decides he's going to destroy the world. Yeah, and I think he only thinks about that because cause Noah is like, if you think you can destroy my control panel by going over there. Yep. It's like, no, I'll just... Well, and you get the great moment, too, where Bashir parrots back what Garrick said to him in the tunnel about, you know, you have to know when to give up mm-hmm. and and just walk away. And, you know, here that's what he does. He just was like, well, I can't beat you, so I'm going to hit the button. You got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, know when yeah, to walk right. away, know when to run. Exactly. So he hits the button and destroys the world. And that happened really quickly. It Yeah, the flooding, yeah. But thankfully, Eddington and Rom were able to beam everyone off of the holodeck in time. Exactly the right moment. And Just in time for o- O'Brien O'Brien's to freak first out reaction about... is like, what the hell did you do to my ship? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I really want to know, like, all the lights come back on, like, where is this backup program coming from? <laughs> Excellent question. If they wiped... I mean, there's is there, like, a floating USB hard drive outside of the station that we don't see? <laughs> Sure, why not? Time machine, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah they've got a time machine. They have a time machine backup. That, you know, every couple months they have to redo it because something got corrupt. That's right. And then we get that wonderful um, bit at the end here where, to, to go back to Bond, Bashir says, I think it's safe to say that Julian Bashir, secret agent, will return as they leave the holodeck. Sadly, not as often as they wanted since MGM got pissy. Yeah, and I'm... Does he ever return? I don't think so. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, but they are very clear not to, you know. Yeah. Like it's a it's it's a minor part in an episode rather than. Okay. But no, Julian Bashir, Bashir secret ape agent, does return in. Um, I want to say it's a simple investigation. I think it's the episode Maybe. title. Maybe. I am due for a DS9 rewatch, so. You know, we of course, could, I'm always due for a DS9 we could, rewatch. You know, do a DS9 podcast. Oh, that wouldn't be a bad idea. Yeah, a simple investigation. I mean, it's what is it? That's the one where where Odo falls in love with the lady who's oh right targeted for murder. Yes. Okay. And he does. He walks onto the hollow suite without knocking and asks for and of asks course for he does. advice. Yep, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably one of the better homage slash parodies i would say to a bond film yeah i mean i'm i'm admittedly biased because it's ds9 and star mm-hmm. trek but certainly better than next week's hey i've never seen next week's so spy hard yeah have you okay uh parts okay or at least i'm i remember bits of, the the thing i most remember is the titles well, that's the Weird Al song. And the title credit design is quite hilarious, too. It's by the same people that did all of the scary movie and ah those things. And it's really people who think they're like Abrams and Zucker who did Airplane. Right. But they don't know how to do a parody. Gotcha. So. Oh, well. Yeah. Well, we're watching it anyway. All right, well, thank you for listening to us this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at PodSpiel, or you can send us an email at spielpodcast at gmail.com. 
And then you can also find me on Twitter at Tyrannicus. And you can find me on Twitter at Listening to Film. I mean, it has like a 5.4, I think, on IMDb. I've seen worse things than that. I think you talked about them on Star Trek podcasts. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we are going to watch Spy Hard next week. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, I but uh, until then, License to Spiel will return. Yeah.